Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Des Bishop Podcast, live from the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. When I say live, I mean in the bedroom of my Airbnb in Melbourne during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, we have a great guest today, David O'Darty. Many of you know him. For those that don't, he is one of the most accomplished comedians we've had on this podcast. Uh, I've also known him longer than everyone other than two people on that have been on this podcast. Uh, great comic, star of the Melbourne Festival, star of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, just taking part in various shows all over the world, plus the 2008 Edinburgh Comedy Award winner. Uh, the list goes on and on. Super interesting guy. Has written so many different things, including uh, a current series of children's books called Dangers Everywhere, a uh, children's book before he even started doing comedy called Ronan Long Gets It Wrong, and uh, also uh, facts about animals series. Uh, so much work to discuss and uh, I chose to try to focus as much as possible on that work for my chat with Dave. Hope you guys enjoy it. There's a little cameo with James Acaster, another great British comic at the end. Uh, so do stick around for that, although it's, it wasn't planned. But uh, So don't think, oh God, we're having a long chat with James Acaster. It's just literally a cameo. Anyway, enjoy the chat and we'll talk to you guys soon. Um, good evening. Uh, dahi is Adam Dum. Agus Tom. 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 Maconi in Melbourne. In Melbourne. In Australia, probably something like that. Austral. It's an Austral. It's an Austral. Anish. Agus is La Jas is a. It's far green, me. That's a, I'm a comedian. <laughs> I know what it is. Or Fuerstor. Fuerstor. Yeah, but there's one. the grey area. I don't want to say I'm a clown. You know, like I used yeah, to Yeah, I know. In, that was the problem. It's like, are you are you saying you're a clown? I used to live in that, in a bedsit house in Five Raglan, no, in Raglan Road. I won't say the number. With You did. Um, technically, there was a children's clown. There was like a guy called Johnny who was actually did birthday parties. There was Brian who was like a trained French Lecoq oh, clown. Oh, yeah, there was my brother who's an acting clown. Oh, that clown. famous house, yeah. And there was me, so it was the house of the four clowns, which uh, yeah. That's in Tishaginaduct. <laughs> to say that properly, that's that's tough grammar. Stop. The house of the clowns. <laughs> uh, well, that's fun. It's funny that you should mention that because I definitely had nostalgia on my mind today chatting to you. Well, because okay. other than Deirdre Kane, of the people I've interviewed, yeah, you're the person I've known the longest. Oh, other than my brother, obviously. I probably met you in 1998. 
Yeah, well, essentially one of your first gigs. One of my first gigs. Yeah, I did. Um, my first gig was in the Norseman Bar. Thursday night. Which is now. <laughs> was it Thursday night? Which is now. I wonder what that's called now. I think, I don't know if it's called the Norseman, but that room is still up there. I always look up. I always look up and at that room. It ha- it was silly. It had shields and stuff on the walls. Yeah, but it was a good room. Yeah, it was a good room. Well, except that it was more the gigs were so good in that era because my first show was Jason Byrne hosting and Tommy Tiernan closing. And yeah. I, and, and I think my brother did a little bit on it. And like, if I'd been working in London, it would have been four years before I got to meet anyone who was like off. that. Yeah. yeah. Tommy Turn was about to win the Perrier Award with the Jesus show. 98. 98. But you yeah. were. So that's that was. But you so you didn't gig at all the summer of 97. No, no. I started um, first gig started the summer in 98 then. Oh, so it was. Uh, yeah, because I met you at the International, obviously. Yeah, that was my second gig, which was with Ardlo Hamlin then as well. When he was father ted massive the third series of father ted had just come out yeah and it was like yeah it was it was crazy time to be starting out also i remember that year 98 i just started uh but then everyone went to the edinburgh fringe in august so i was just did loads of gigs for the likes of that summer yeah that summer which was a real drop you in it ones where you can't be shit like you know the thing about doing the norseman and the international at the start was like you would be given the little spot and it didn't you know if it went badly it wasn't the end of the world but suddenly you're yeah you were the 20 minute guy getting paid because there was nobody around yeah you're getting 75 quid to go in milano pizza oh yeah i, I died so badly then i, I everyone died in milano man <laughs> It's a it's a incredibly hard... attractive woman that uh, organized that gig. I my main memory was old people. They used to get loads of old people. I think they maybe they got buses of people from yeah, was tourists just, from Nassau Street. That was a mistake. But let's not focus on the terrible gigs of that era. And I my early set was like jokes about PlayStation games and stuff like that. And these people have lived through wars. You know what I mean? And I'm talking to them about yeah, but it was also just spread out and people were there for a pizza. I mean, it was like. And like some people are like, hey, there's comedy on tonight. Would you like to sit in the comedy section of the place? I mean, I do wonder if 19 years on, I would be able to do that now. You know, it was those gigs were so... Like, the unfair thing about comedy is that you get better and crowds generally come to see you. Yeah, the crowds get better, so they too. They get easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the hardest <laughs> part ever is when, good point. is when you're no good. And, and you're playing it, the shittiest scenario. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point, actually. Like, yeah. it's totally not fair. It's totally not fair, especially then when you go and see, like, big comedians in theaters. You start to go and see them, and, like, they get a Well, you get that 15-minute honeymoon period. like just, Ovation that, when you that come early, out. That early, that first 10 minutes of those gigs is just like, you could say whatever you want. Yeah, for sure. But then compare that with your first so- couple of solo shows where no one knows who you are, and you're st- on stage for too long, and you come out and everyone's got their arms folded, you know, as in... Yeah. This is probably going to be shit. Like, that's they're the hardest gigs, in a way. So let's talk about what I consider one of my happy memories of comedy is those first couple of years of the International Comedy Club. Not the Comedy Cellar, but yeah. the Thursday nights when I took over. Yes. And it was just at the time that you started, yes. which I always tell people was very lucky because myself and yourself and eventually guys like Carl Spain, yeah. we... The same people used to come to the show every week. Oh, that, we, oh, that era, yeah. And we were stuck. That's probably ha- having to sort of 
improvise yeah, completely because every like if you changed one line afterwards someone would come up to you and go i like that new line you've put in that joke i've heard eight <laughs> well there was times francis before. and those girls and i used to get them to do this but there was just a little francis and frank and then these two girls anyway there was just a little crew yeah. of people before it started to grow yeah that but was I, but I, I was always grateful because that was like luckily creative time and place to have I particularly the sort of end of the show 15 20 minutes you remember that the show used to finish I was hosting and then and if I hadn't been on I remember walking in and just my undies a few times <laughs> yeah you used to just come on stage <laughs> but there was a but you know I mean it, on a serious note there was like an, an energy or an atmosphere a playful atmosphere that yeah. was kind of conducive to thinking oh shit anything is possible yes that's true and then very often the which is a valuable lesson to earn very often if something is spontaneous and truly, uh, truly spontaneous, it's actually much funnier than the jokes you've spent ages trying to write as yes. well. And then you're kind of like, hey, I should not give a shit this much all of the time. Now, like you, you used to often come up the stairs like in the middle of my hosting and just be like, oh, sorry, is this comedy? You know, you used to just like do I remember coming up on my bike a few times and things like that. <laughs> but yeah. No, but we used to fuck around with the keyboard. And yeah, I... Yeah, it's a that was a very beautiful e era of that was the first sort of messing around that I did, you know, because because like I didn't really know what I was at at the start. My early sets would have just been lists of jokes, like non sequitur, you know, um, one liners. And yeah, but funnily enough, I always thought you knew a bit more about what you wanted to be when you started, much more than I did. Like I, I just like ha I, I I sort of fell into comedy and I loved it, but I always felt like you were a bit more comedy literate when you started i mean i was certainly obsessed with comedy at the yeah. start because my brother had been doing stand-up for four years before me and i'd gone to every like those people who went to see yeah, you our knew show them all. every week i'd been that person for the previous five years of right. going to every show around town and kind of waving at barry murphy and, yeah because i started doing comedy within sort of five months of seeing my first live comedy show yeah no i'd been since 90 my brother started 93 and I used to go to pretty much all of his gigs then. And I really liked, uh, like we, my dad was a big comedy fan, is a big comedy fan. And he always had tapes, weirdly, of Steve Wright, you know, like one-liner people. And then weird American uh, guys from the 60s, like um, uh, uh, Professor Irwin Corey and... You know, that sort of hipster comedy movement of that came out of jazz clubs. Yeah. Because dad's a jazz musician. And so we were always listening to that. Yeah, so you were very age. exposed. Yeah. And then my brother took me to see Kevin McAleer in, when I was in about fourth year in school then. And it fucking blew my mind. You know, because he, it was him in the Olympia to did two halves. It was him with the slideshow, like the real classic first uh first period of kevin mcaleer and i yeah it was just the fact that one person been on stage for that long i think with no set i i just yeah that was it just blew you away yeah it really did and i didn't think about like oh i'd love to do that one day it was but did just, you do you think that if that your brother hadn't done comedy that you would have done comedy um my brother only did comedy my brother had a was an actor is an actor and there was just there was a period where there was no work in Dublin in the 90s. Mark was um, 
cleaning doing a lot of cleaning for like children's nurseries and stuff like that you know just to make uh to, to supplement his dole and uh he I, I he was certainly drawn to that scene i don't know i was drawn to it as well in that like there's a very, there's a, i remember reading an interview with dylan moran once and he was on stumbling upon the Dublin comedy scene of there would have been a few years before, but he just went into it going, "This is going to be shit," and he was just so pleasantly surprised because it was Barry Murphy, Kevin Gildee, Ardlow Hanlon, Pom Boyd, all those people. I I love the Dylan line is, uh, uh, I thought it was going to be awful, but it was like a Berlin cabaret in the 1930s. Someone would get up and kill a swan. Someone would play a chocolate piano, and that was kind of the. Th- scene that i was looking at then you know yeah. and that they were all so broke i really liked it you know there'd be a fist fight over briquettes after every show among those sort of older guys yeah 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 and then but then the one of the big differences and like i sound like i'm a million years old now is that there was no money when we were getting like there was no career plan whatsoever mm. there was doing those gigs where like you'd get whatever you'd get 20 quid for doing the gig and uh or 75 quid for doing the dying in the pizza place or whatever and but there was no I remember talking to Kitson about this like there were no there was Eddie Izzard and Kevin McAleer did theaters that was pretty much it in your yeah in your in your mind right well that's all there was and there were no comedy clubs in Ireland no at yeah all. yeah so the aspiration wasn't to oh move on to the next level. It was just this is really fun. Let's try and write more things for next week. I certainly had no yeah at career the start. trajectory. You know, I ended up going to Edinburgh and which was just a kind of a continuation of that scene. But it was just nice because it was just for its own sake, really. And then meeting kind of uh, uh, people who were starting out super fresh like yourself, and then like. Ruben the mime and yeah even though that was actually a little late it's funny yeah, how Maeve time Higgins time becomes yeah maybe came later. a good bit later yeah actually. yeah yeah but that's but like that was just my scene for till about 2006 i would say you know six years i was in there most weeks yeah so a couple of things i want to ask you i remember in the early days you you used to talk a lot about jazz and the sort of jazz oh inspiration was that just wank or did you actually feel like you were you were inspired by jazz music in your comedy well my dad's no i knew that yeah but dad that's what dad did and i i always really liked the non-preciousness of jazz whereby there'd be no one at dad's gigs you know dad would have a gig in jj smith's dad would have a gig downstairs and what Reynards or whatever pub was doing jazz at that time and there would be four people there yeah. and dad afterwards would be like oh my god that was such a fun gig you know because <laughs> yeah. it was him and the trio they just had their own vibe and I always really uh, respected that I liked the fact that they would turn things inside out quite a lot you know where you and you were never embarrassed for him you were never going like this is shit no because that was that's he was doing exactly what he wanted to yeah, do yeah, yeah. from a very early age. I like I wanted to be a jazz musician. Like I ran jazz gigs when I was 20, 21. Even when I started stand up, uh, I was sort of half involved in. Yeah, because I remember you used to be involved like the Brad Meldow yeah, trio gigs so, and stuff. So I, I, I got to know Brad Meldow, who's like now probably the most famous uh, pianist in jazz, which is like saying the most famous double glazer in 
uh, windows. But uh, he, yeah, then he was spending a lot of time in Dublin. And he was just at a level so far ahead of anything I would ever be. So did it ever find its way into your work? Or was that just a thing that in your mind that, I don't know, uh, like, a, like a nice thing to feel? I, I, I certainly, it's still, it's still, I listen to jazz. I listen to it uh, around gigs. I like the, I, I just like the idea that there isn't a set script that you can go off in numerous directions. But as regards going on with nothing, and sort of improvising your way out of it. You know, I do that sometimes, but I wish I, I wish I did more of that. But it would, I, I know, know, but there's just, still there's to me purity to the idea of jazz music, which is it's not like a smoke machine when you walk out on stage. It's not like really loud pre-show music and someone shouting, "Get ready for this gig." It's just this thing that exists on its own. And I was, I've always been inspired by that. Yeah, just from a. You you need these sort of touchstones of purity, I think, in your life. And it's still what I aspire to. And I still, like, I'd like to think that my my shows are getting better and heading towards this idea. I'll probably never get there. But, but do you think part of the sort of being around that all your life and seeing your dad being this expert musician? Because I always felt that you were really concerned about getting better at the form all the time like the form of stand-up comedy so to speak you know always trying to learn more get better yeah i think that part of that came from that i mean yeah everybody has that but i just feel like you were sure i never i never really thought about uh i never really thought about it like i'm trying to learn but i just remember going to as many gigs still do go to loads and loads of gigs but particularly in that period just going to every gig ever like my first couple of edinburgh's was just wanting to see all these different styles of comedy and then definitely doing my own shitty version of some of them you know probably on stage in the international you know where because I, I i started gigging with flight of the concords in 2002 and just remember like writing some songs that were just like Flight of the Concord songs then. Yeah, because um, I was going to say, I felt like that was a kind of a, a moment in your life, that 2002 Edinburgh, where suddenly you really find yeah. some kindred spirits. Yeah, there was... there was um, I, I, So I did the newcomer competition in 1999, and the final of that was me, uh, Jimmy Carr, Andy Zaltzman, who was like John Oliver's double act partner, Josie Long, uh, Juliet Cowan and a, a few others and so of that lot me and Andy would still be very close me and Josie would still be very close and and you didn't mention that you won it, and it wasn't he uh, won <laughs> <laughs> he won it it was why you think it funny 1999 yes I won that's where I won the massive cardboard check for it like they gave me one of those huge cardboard checks for a thousand pounds and I thought it was real I always thought huge checks. One day you'd be walking into the bank with the huge check. I thought, like, <laughs> I, I thought the deal with checks was they were illegal tender. It didn't matter what size they were on. If it just had the sort code at the bottom. And this had a sort code. So I brought it home to Dublin in my did case. That. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and I uh, took it to the permanent TSB on Packer Street Bridge. The massive check. You did not. Yeah. And like, they still talk about it. That's still my bank. <laughs> they still they were like that this i is wish not. you know back in the day now that would have been a viral you know sorry if that had been now i should yeah. say that would have been a viral david yeah. already tries to cast massive check uh and so 
yeah, I met um, Daniel Kitson would have been like there would be a few seminal figures that I like yourself, and then uh, the stuff. Yeah, but that I was we a little early. Doing, we yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, ta- out together. I'm talking about it chronologically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then uh, yeah, but I the- just think I just I always felt like that Edinburgh time for you was just like huge from the show about a breakup which was like a tough undertaking yeah, 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 to was. meeting the lads like that was just to me it was you kind of going like who am i who am i who am i as a comedian and then explosion well, well i mean it's a it's it's a very slow explosion in that it takes another yeah, I'm 6 ta- years yeah well i was thinking i was thinking what was that show 2000 the one about breaking up 2002 it was 2002 yeah yeah and then the uh, not so much an explosion as do you know in caves when water drips off the ceiling and over like a hundred thousand years one of those stalling tights <laughs> fills yeah. up that's more like my career yeah i i didn't actually mean explosion career-wise i actually actually meant sort of like yourself as a yeah, performer no, yeah the the there was so there was um in edinburgh i was doing my own solo show and then there was um another uh it was called best of irish where we'd all go and do a bit some nights in the stand uh, in no it was actually uh, in cave one and and after that gig where it was like some other gig and i was just like, oh, i'll watch a bit of this see what it's like and it was flight of the Conchords. yeah and it was actually there were two shows there's one called humor beasts yeah i was, was there yeah was, yeah you were there so, i was there 2002 so, so yeah. that's jermaine clement and taika waititi who's just did um uh hunt for the wilder people and has just directed the new thor movie so they were a double act and then Concords were Brett and Jermaine. Pretty much that they did have their shit together in that they were Well, intact. particularly the Flight of the Concords. Yes. Humor Beast was fun, but it was a little more chaotic than Flight of the Concords. Um, and yeah, and so that was to no one in a dripping cave. And then last summer we toured, I toured with Concords around America. We did like Red Rocks to 12,000 or whatever. You know, so that's that particular journey. <laughs> Yeah, but them. that was a luck. That was an amazing time. Like that little. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that. I mean, I mean, they were just so good. While well, the rest of us were sort of floundering, you know, the John Oliver and Josie, and uh, we were all trying to figure out the sort of thing we wanted to do. Yeah, but I don't think well, you weren't even friendly with John Oliver by that stage, were you? Do you yeah, I would have. I would have met them or yeah that year I yeah think. that year yeah. and then we always to play football every day in the meadows and yeah and so the bush touch rugby yeah the bush had just come and gone uh and they were sort of the heading naked samoans used to play tip rugby with us yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. and they they're now most of those are in taika's movies now most is of that guys. right yeah 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 because so, i remember we all used to go and watch them pretty much every night fly to the concord yeah it was a very yeah it was a very interesting time as regards i don't know i just remember floundering a lot i remember being like my show's no good but i see the thing i don't see the thing that i want to do but i see the next step along the way where it could be better than this and that was definitely yeah 2002 was a huge year for me yeah i felt i felt like that was like a kind of a turning point you Uh, you found major inspiration yeah, that's exactly it. Being I around those guys. Absolutely broken my arse, though. You know, until, for, like, no one came. No, pe- some people came in 2002. Some people came in 2003. You know, I'd do a show in Edinburgh, and then I'd do a little run of it in the Project Arts Centre in Dublin. 
Yeah. But it was like mounting credit card bills sort of vibe. I met Dimitri Martin in 2003. And he was another one of those people who had his shit together. You know, yeah. as in he had a unique view. Uh, in his case, it was one-liners mixed with this kind of weird existential doubt and gaps in his life that he was trying to fill with, you know, in, around that period, he was writing out, it sounds like Scientology or something, but he, do you remember he was trying to improve his life using mathematics, where he'd rate every day, he would uh, rate how healthy the food he'd eaten today was. You know what I mean? He was yeah. just... And that was sort of reflected in his weird shows then as well. And I remember seeing that also and being like, wow, that's really interesting. The idea of doing shitty jokes, which is still what I love doing, but then also being vaguely profound about it as well, about the place of shitty jokes in the world, which is out there is chaos. These are funny, though. But when and did you start to when did you start to sort of really rate yourself or just go fuck it like it's got to start to be like oh. me at the front of it all <laughs> um you because i feel like I, like I, abroad I, abroad started to appreciate the skills and the the master of david odardi before back it. home the the no i mean i always i was always running my own gigs i was always uh doing well doing all the gigs that are where on offer in Ireland, you know, which was a real mixed bag. You know, I remember once playing the foyer of Ungreen on Theatre in Donegal with you. Oh, yeah, we all did that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and just doing university gigs. I remember the those gigs for Carol cigarettes. It's been discussed on this podcast before. Which is like something <laughs> Free from the cigarettes. 1950s. Yeah. I just discussed it. I just did an interview on Melbourne Uni Radio. And the guy was asking me about the old days. And I was like, yeah, we used to have gigs sponsored by Carol Cigarettes and they gave out free cigarettes to students. <laughs> <laughs> I just, the one thing that I always think of with Carol Cigarettes was, are Carol Cigarettes still around? I, I don't know. They, um, uh, Paddy Courtney was a, is a uh, Dublin comedian and he used to nick loads of cigarettes to give to his uh, granny. And uh, he'd always ring up his grandparents and he'd be like, uh, uh, the phone would answer him like, hello and he'd be like sorry granddad can you put granny on this is your granny <laughs> and that is the ad for carol cigarettes that I <laughs> someone getting three cartons of carols uh, every week uh yeah so there was all those kind of very odd gigs so i was always hustling you know in that like putting on yeah gigs. yeah no no i know yeah but and, and it wasn't early on i sort of twigged that i worked better like there was a commercial comedy club opened in dublin in about 2000 i would yeah, say yeah left the lounge yeah but i was never a great fit for that so i was always doing my own thing i always liked the hour yeah the, idea of the hour as well because you can just stretch out and also playing songs as well isn't necessarily ideally suited to that clubby environment you know where you got to really follow it. You know, Although I, it was in the left lounge. You, I don't know if you know this, oh but one night I was in the left lounge. I came up with what the, what the scenario was, but I had a quick line, which was one day this, you know, this, this economic boom will be over. The recession will be, or like the, the bad times will be back and we'll be back to worrying about turning off the immersion again. <laughs> and, and then I guess that night I went on a little bit of a, like a, yeah, 
like I started tagging on it, but just like off the top of my head. Oh, and you yeah. pulled me to the side when I came off and you said, you got to explore that more. There's, there's more in that. <laughs> you actually said to me, there's more in that immersion thing. Push that a bit further. <laughs> yeah, well. Do you know that? you do? You, I, like, I, it's the sort of thing that I, you know, in that we were very encouraging. Yeah, we, everybody was encouraging, yeah. yeah. But you definitely said there's more. Now, I'm not saying I wouldn't have found it anyway, no, no, but no, no, no. I remember you saying there's more in that. You got to explore that further. That, that's interesting, yeah. I, and then I think it was because I had a heartbreak thing in about 2002. That was, you know, everyone had a heartbreak thing in 2002. But uh, I then tried to write a show about it. So it was, that was a, an interesting time because up until then I'd just been writing silly jokes and one-liners yeah. and all about the world and looking out and all of that. And then suddenly I tried to write a show or try to be funny about the awful feelings that I had. I tried to explore feelings-based comedy. And the, so that was a bit of a break. But that show wasn't bad. That, it wasn't bad. It was, it was just the room was fucking horribly hot. <laughs> I remember that fucking sweating my way through that show. In Edinburgh. Yeah, that was yeah. that was a tricky one. But but no, what I'm saying is artistically, if that's not too wanky a word, that, that was a, quite a significant show then mm. as well. And then... Yeah, I, I, and it was an odd time because the Dublin was booming at the time, but I was broke for all of that as well. Yeah. So there was, I think that's where there was a kind of an awakening of this is really weird that, like, it was that thing where obviously house prices were shooting up and it seemed it's kind of like how it seems for millennial kids now it was just like oh i'm i'm gonna live in this bedsit till i die yeah i'm not gonna be a part of this yeah and i was about four grand in credit card debt at the time so i think and then uh the economy collapsed <laughs> just when i was started making money <laughs> well it was sort of looking like i would start to pay off those bills yeah it's just like the deepest recession in the history of a western economy began yeah but that was also then when i won the perrier so that was what did you win in 08 yeah 08 that oh, was oh you won in 08 yeah that was pretty much i think the week the really bad irish stats came in yes and the things started to bottom out and all the dickheads in the newspapers are like, it's just temporary. It's only, it's just going to last People a talking down the economy should just kill themselves. The, the really, truly ballsy people are buying property now because this is a temporary blip. Was that like your thing, 08, 09, 2010, where you suddenly went, oh, this is, it was all fucking bullshit. Yeah. Easy time to be cynical. Yeah, it like, was an easy time to be. I mean, I I always. Well, you should have. Yeah, we should. I was been. always cynical. Yeah. And. But I think you kind of started to really like let it out. Yeah. Like. I remember... Um, like the end of Whimsy. Well, like, Whimsy annoys me because... So, like, it's this thing where I've always tried to write Well, shows. I never heard the term Whimsy until you used to put it in your show, like, something, something Whimsy. You used yeah, to I know, have I, the line. I know I used to because I used to write shows about really serious things. Like, I used to try and write shows about feeling like a breakup or feeling depressed. She or, left me in a hardware shop. Yeah, that was the song. <laughs> And uh, and the early on, it would just be like, oh, another whimsical, another silly. This show's yeah. so lightweight, you, it would blow away. And I was like, I was trying to open my fucking heart to you. And uh, 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I remember doing an interview in about 2004 with, I can't remember who it was with, some journalist in Ireland who was like, I was like, and it's a very weird time we're living through in this country because with the the tiger economy and 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 he was like but what did it used to be like what are the changes and i was like i don't really know because this is I, what I, i've come that's into all i've, I've come known. of age in this yeah i'd grown i you know i'd left school in 94 and it had kind of Never all suffered, yeah. all graphs had been pointing upwards from that point yeah. onwards and so i didn't really have any th- any counterpoint to compare it to but then when the thing went on its arse i think that definitely yeah now you do and we had a right to be angry and the oh, uh, and a right to be uh cynical and a right to be suspicious of pretty much everything we were told so yeah that was probably uh that was probably a turning point as well i don't know i never really think about this though. no i know i was just, but, I'm just but, curious. but but yeah your, your your probing is is probably correct there desmond <laughs> Good. All right, well, let me just ask you one other Good thing probing. before we finish and go play football. Oh, shit. It's uh, fine. What time is it? It's, um, we're not, we're in no hurry. Okay. We're, we've rented a pitch at three. And it's, what time is it? Five to two. Oh, okay, perfect. You can go for eight. You, oh, yeah, we're going to go for another 15 minutes. Well, uh, so in all this sort of your life, uh, you know, like you, you're, you're quite sort of like busy now all over the world. You've got, you're, you're doing big shows, but then you have this other life. The children's writer life yeah which well, kind of was there from at the very beginning yeah. and then stopped when i would have met you first you had I, a book I, out i had a book out yeah i wrote yeah, what a book was it called was again 22 ronan long gets it wrong ronan long gets it about wrong. a boy who was a terrible inventor yeah i was um because i think it was because my parents didn't tell me it was a stupid idea from about the age of 11 onwards i was writing stories and then just sending them to the addresses inside children's books that I liked. You know what I mean? Like, just put my story in an envelope and send it off to Penguin Publishing or whatever. And, like, I actually still have some of the letters. I have this really funny one, which was, it's a hand-typed out letter from the editor of the Irish Times from about um, 1988, which was like, Dear David, we... Uh, are not interested in your series of ad- <laughs> we strongly suggest you take a guardian or a parent like I had gone like guys hey Irish Times I'm 11 I'm going to cycle right around the whole edge of Ireland <laughs> and send you a dispatch every few days are you in 
<laughs> and it's like a really nice letter just about maybe this isn't such a good idea also maybe you would have collapsed by the time you got to Arklo on your attempt to <laughs> go clockwise uh, around the, the country and similarly yeah I was sending stories off I used to get really nice letters back from but people, this desire was in you from people who worked in children's well they were like no good the stories were no good but they were just like keep going this is great you know like real nice stuff like that and I did keep going and I was definitely inspired by, I was in university with um, Paul Murray, who's wrote Skippy Dies, you know, a, oh, yeah. a book that was on the Booker list um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and he was, he would like have his, in university, he would have his lecture notes and then he would always be writing stories or books just like th real throwaway stuff you knew him did you yeah i sat oh, you beside were, him oh yeah you yeah. were aware that he was doing this. and he it was just a thing that i'd never really thought about of like what if you just all the time are writing and you know bits like a few lines of this thing a short story that's four lines long or whatever and so throughout university i didn't, I didn't do any work really i wasn't that into economics or philosophy philosophy uh but i met some very interesting people and sort of through that then started writing stories for kids but what what made you go kids like what made you think i want to because uh, i think i didn't i and i still to this day don't i know what it takes to write a a literary book a novel it takes years it takes i don't like doing stand-up kind of ruins your mind in that you get the immediate reaction to you know i could think of a thing now and try it out tonight at the show no but at the time though it was even pre-stand-up no yeah so what made you go kids because with? i knew that paul had been writing this novel from the age of about 16 onwards like four years work and i just didn't have that within me but i'd always i knew you could write shorter things and i really enjoyed reading for i'd worked with kids in care when i was in oh, university right, okay. that was my uh uh uh, job on the side working as a sort of relief s social worker at children's homes in Dunleary in Dublin and I just enjoyed it and I enjoyed just making rubbish up you know with kids yeah. like my my brother uh, was was a there was just like so many really developed lies in our childhood you know just really brain provoking like i remember because my brother and sister i think this is a really key thing for me was they were seven eight years older than me so they were massively my intellectual superior and they were also my physical superior so both of them could just get me down put their knee on the back of my head and make me say i am the you are the king <laughs> <You're> the king. <laughs> uh, and i remember my brother we 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 used to look at the argos catalog a lot when there was no argos in dublin and um just looking at the toys and my brother had this thing going for about two years which was i have that i have all of these toys and and he had them in a secret store somewhere in our house and you believed it yeah i believe no i'd be like i don't believe you but then i did believe it yeah and then he would uh take me there and like just remember this went on for like this is the sort of fantasy world that i grew up in this went on for two years he'd be like okay it's fine you're old enough now i'll show you where it is <laughs> And he'd take me uh, to, you know, like there was a shed and he'd be like tapping on the wall. Of the shed. <laughs> and then he would have this elaborate sort of heart attack seizure where he'd drop to his knees 
and fall on the ground dead and then come around like he'd stay down for ages and he'd come around and I'd be like oh thank goodness you're alive you were about to show me where the secret store is and he's like I wasn't going to show you where it was and I'd be like no <laughs> a so, two year build up yeah so this well no it would happen again and yeah, again yeah, yeah. and like a, a dog returning to its own shit I would just it's keep kind being of almost like, like having an uncle when you have a brother that that's much yeah that's exactly that much older that much than smarter you. and yeah there's a Kurt Vonnegut line about um uh, so often uh, comedians are the youngest because they've never anything intelligent to say in family conversations like so my brother and sister will be talking about you know things they'd learned or great art projects they were working on and i would just be like guys uh so i'd yeah <laughs> fart. fart dance <laughs> put peanut butter in hair just be like peanut butter in my hair uh, so I think that so the children's stuff definitely came from from that, and then uh, uh, over the years I did a few kids shows. I did a kids show. Me and Maeve Higgins did a kids. Yeah, show. I was going to ask you about that. That you know, like from from that book, then it was always kept yeah. showing up. We did a show where we were. What's it called again? I can't. Sleep. I can't sleep. Yeah, it was two beds on stage, and I, I she I, was asleep and I couldn't sleep, so I would ask the audience how to get to sleep. Because I remember watching that and thinking, this is genius. Because kids love the simple game of, yeah. I'm trying to sleep. Well, no one can get to sleep also. So it was a very relatable piece of... But we'd string it out to 45 minutes. Yeah, so, but it was great because I thought, wow, it's amazing that Dave has figured out these little triggers yeah, for, I, I to think, entertain I kids. I think I do have something... To be honest, I don't think your sense of humor changes very much from the age of about eight or nine. Honestly, like... All the stuff I liked then, Faulty Towers, Monty Python, you know, uh, fair enough. You get a bit more sophisticated. You get more sophisticated. I wouldn't have been able to sit through Manhattan or something like, you know, the, the, when I was eight. But as regards the silly jokes, Blackadder, you know, stuff like that, mm. that's still the stuff that I really uh, love. Uh, and... So, what, do you, so, what do you regret liking? Like I regret liking Andrew Dice Clay, even though he's had a sort of a career revival. But I did think those <laughs> I did think those nursery rhymes are funny, and I'm surprised I, I didn't know. I mean, I'm I am in going back to stuff. I'm always intrigued by how certain things are just perfectly off their time. Like something like the Young Ones. Because I remember my brother and sister used to watch that. Yeah, they used to love that. Right? Which was, and I was like six or seven. But it was like the sort of punk new wave TV show. And if you watch it now, it's 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 good as a sort of historic piece, but at the time, I totally see that. It, it's hard to be too critical. When of course, you're 13 I, I, or 14. I, I, I'm like giving myself a hard time. It's just, just funny how you, you know, it's just funny how you change. So, so yeah, so I, I, I thought uh, I can't sleep was great. Do, well, doing, I'm doing a kids show tomorrow morning now at eleven. Yeah, it, but then now, so, 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 I, I feel like Danger is Everywhere is a bit more of an. It's a bit more substantial in terms of your kids' work in that you now have like a, a, a series of books. Written three books of it. Yeah. yeah. Which is which is like, but a big influence on that was, you know, going back to uh, 05, 06, meeting Claudia O'Doherty then, who's now, you know, in love, the Judd Apatow series. And she and I then wrote two books of, with Micah Hearn, we did two books of fake facts about animals. In, oh right! In like oh nine ten then, and I definitely dangers everywhere came from that because these were books that looked like they looked like they were reference books for grown ups, and they were just horseshit facts about sharks. Yeah, and 
that sort of unlocked something within me then right. to try and do a similar thing for kids. But you, you had to do it. The workaround was you couldn't write fake reference books for kids because kids didn't know what references were. So instead, it's just a very unreliable man who's worried about, say, sharks coming up out of the loo or whatever it happens to be. And that's the basis of Dangerous Everywhere then. Which, uh, yeah, now, so I do a lot of shows of that during the day at festivals like this. When and then with the, <clears throat> like, who's, whose idea was it that the illustrations were just as important? Like, like that came from Claudia or that came from of the, Mike? Or the, just, just the, the original sort of evolution, like what? Oh, the original of the Sharks and the Pandas books. We, um, uh, I was very into uh, the, I think they were called uh, the Usborne book of, it'd be like, the paranormal or ghosts. One of those books you read when you're about eight, as you're eating your breakfast cereal, you're just staring at uh, these sort of drawings of UFOs. And it was a highly, pic there were a lot of pictures. It was about 60% pictures. So we wanted to go back to that era of slightly unreliable. Uh, and, you know, cause I was like all kids, I was obsessed with like Loch Ness Monster and yeah, yeah, yeah. shark attacks. I just, I spent so much of my life worried about, especially, going on holidays to Ackle every year where my granny had lived, just like shark attacks and what to do. There was a shark attack, you know, peeing on jellyfish stings and all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so uh, that was from those books. So we wanted to try and replicate those books, which, and the book never, of that first series, which was for grown-ups, it never admitted that it wasn't real. So uh, consequently, it's the funniest Amazon reviews ever because it's like, half of them are really good and the other half are just like i thought this was a book of facts about pandas what the <laughs> hell is it uh so it, it it just in order to seem real we needed amazing photoshop and because i'd met the the daddy guys who are um, yeah you because i remember that, that you were connected with them from way back in the yeah day. i used to do gigs with warlords of pez and used to do gigs with the chalets then go like i i, I was always doing uh, uh, around the time I was doing gigs with you in the international, I would also do gigs with like David Kitt and yeah, some I remember bands. all that. You were National, always just connected with interesting people. National I mean, Prayer David Prayer is a story of connections <laughs> with interesting people. In fairness, <laughs> well, I think playing a little keyboard meant you, it was easier to do music gigs as well. Yeah. Also, when you came out, people would often think, especially if I opened with a a song that had a big musical intro, people would think I was a super earnest. Uh, musician who was just <laughs> having to be playing yeah. a novelty keyboard then. The equivalent of a ukulele, really. Oh, man, don't say that. <laughs> no, just in terms of the, the guy comes out with the Yamaha. Yeah, uh, like it's 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 not... I know it is fundamentally ridiculous. And I, I know people must see, oh, the guy who thinks he's fucking hilarious playing the little keyboard. But like there, think was, think there was a real practicality to it. There always has been, which is I've carried around big pianos and hired big pianos for yeah. gigs it's a pain in the arse whereas this it's very convenient <laughs> especially for jumping on stage with bands and stuff like that we can just plug into a guitar yeah. socket and away you go so while like i think it does it it does have it is sort of funny with the shitty beats and all that the sort of convenience of it is the main reason I think I still play them. I still getting laughs off the shitty beats? I <laughs> 19 years my, later, we still get laughs off the shitty beats. My entire career is people laughing at my uh, shitty beats. Yeah. But anyway, I, don't want, I, I just want to stay in this just for another sec. So it's funny how... Well, first of all, you have an incredible ability to sort of 
stay connected to like the shit you used to like when you were a kid really well just in the sense that like you're able to still know like like you were saying a minute ago i remember liking these things like that stays oh, yeah, fresh yeah. Like, i i don't have a, as much of a connection to like what i found interesting when i was a kid oh right. like in terms of turning it yeah yeah, like, yeah yeah like creating something that other kids would then find interesting right yeah 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 i i yeah, I mean, I know it's not that I watch Blackadder every day, you know, and I realized the sort of sitcom form is, is being turned in its head by a, you know, bunch of Americans. Sh- you know, even in the last few years, shows like Fleabag have come along where it's just, oh shit, this is something new. No, I, I, I meant I, in relation to the. I, de- I definitely still have the ability to get obsessed with things. You know, that's uh, maybe this will change in future years when I have a child or something like that. But I still, you know, the the modern concept of binge watching a thing, that's always been my entire life. Just getting obsessed with a thing, getting obsessed with a thing, staying up for like 20 hours working on a song or, you know, me and Connor Creaney would work on a musical thing for and just it would be tomorrow. And yeah. we would still be doing it. But now you have kids. Now you meet kids. And the dads are like, oh, my kid loves dangers everywhere. <laughs> I mean, that is the one of the most joyous parts of this job at the moment is kids come to the, sh- the kids' shows dressed as the guy from dangers everywhere. Yeah. Especially when kids come in Australia. Like, just, which is so far from the whatever, bathroom in Dublin where I probably thought about it, the book for the first time. Pre-flush. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, uh, yeah, that's the, that's, that's, an, or, or the other thing that really knocks me out is when people are, like, I've seen six of your shows, you know, that is, you know, people have just come back because I've done a shitload of shows now. Uh, like a new hour every year no i know yeah but i was just thinking in terms of the kid book it's pretty amazing also just in terms of how one of your earliest jokes oh yeah was about performing to kids and how their heckles were ruthless yeah 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 that's right yeah yeah yeah. that um so it it, i feel like it was kind of like it was in you anyway yeah it's like there was just this awareness of entertaining kids well it's well it's like basically the same like it is actually the same you know you sometimes i wish i had the at those kids gigs i I get a roving mic and i walk around sort of like springer style and shove it in people's faces and ask them uh, what's a dangerous thing kids say the darndest things uh, i ask them about uh, dangers at school and stuff yeah and they do say the darndest things and then they say like incredibly dark things oh really yeah have you got any great examples i i hate putting you on the spot but i do love that shit um uh we were we were we talk about vampires a bit or ghosts and people will have actual like and i what i want is silliness with ghosts like i i kind of you know, the deeper philosophical idea of the Danger is Everywhere book is that everyone is scared of loads of things. And that's cool. You know, I was really, when I was little, I was really scared of the dark. and then Yeah, me too. I wouldn't the, go upstairs without my dog. Yeah. and Or in the west of Ireland, I got really obsessed with banshees and, <laughs> you know, all of that <laughs> yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. real dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember the first time I heard about banshees. Yeah, that shit stayed Really with me. terrifying. Especially when you then, when you're walking around Ackle Island after... Uh, 9 p.m. where it's that sort of pitch darkness where you can only feel the road under your feet you know that is a terror engine uh and so with the 
with the danger books i i want people to i guess similar to listening to the economist jim power talk about how the irish economy is going to be fine in the year 2008 i love the idea of a grown-up character who's just full of shit so that a six-year-old can look at him and be like this guy isn't all that he doesn't he seems to think that um there's a thing called a toothbrush snake which lies beside your actual toothbrush and you put toothpaste on it just that you will learn to that fear is so is that the live show is you the live show is no i don't i i talk about the it's actually i do i have loads of well when i do it with chris judge he just draws live so we ask the audience what they're scared of and then we just kind of make fun of it and the audience realize that everyone else is scared of the same stuff of them as well and by the end of it, Chris has drawn a picture of the girl who's uh, scared of sharks being eaten by a shark. You know what I mean? Etc. <laughs> uh, Etc. Et so we all just sort of get it out in the open. Is the idea of the kids shows, uh, and hopefully they're funny then uh, as well. But that, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's that's it, it's it's not. It, I like the freedom of the kids gigs because I there really isn't the plan in them. Sometimes I wish my stand up I could be that sort of free with them, but maybe it's my. Well, you could, you could, or, you could do that. After a year off in Edinburgh, you could come back and do a a mess around show. Mess around show. Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely like the reason. By the way, it's a good time. I, I meant to say, it seems to be a good time to be doing these kids' show because a fucking huge demand for it. For yeah, well, the books have been popular. Yeah, but also just I, I feel like nowadays parents love bringing their kids to like these types of shows. Well, I do know that for my friends with kids, if they're fucking dying to go, they're to dying shit. to do anything, especially that's something not they could get terrible. So yeah. if you can put on something reasonable for kids, the grown ups will be like, "All right, I'll get a coffee and but the, but the grown ups get a kick kick out of it. Oh too, yeah, right? well we relentlessly mock the grown ups then. So they yeah they they do uh, get them like I I, I just. With all, like you've asked me to this podcast uh, a couple of times, and I just. I wasn't going to bring it up that no, you were resistant to doing my podcast. No, I'm not resistant to doing your podcast. Resistance to. I just think I, I hopefully I'm going to do something good in the next few years. Dave, and, you're full of and, shit. And, and, I, and I want to. Not that I think this isn't good, the stuff that I'm doing now, but I still think there's something. This is all going somewhere. And. And. Uh, yeah, and even talking about yeah, but isn't it this, okay like, to it's it's good where it is as well? Yeah, yeah, it, it totally is. But I, you're I, not dismissing the future by saying fuck. It's actually been all right till n- now. No, 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 no. But I don't want to be like a smugatron who's like. And then of course I realized that the main point of comedy was to ameliorate suffering in the world or whatever. No, but people, I don't know people anything. find people interesting. I'm pretty sure if I listen back to this in 20 years time, I'll be like, that guy's an asshole talking about me, you know, that I sound like I know something. But I, I do, I just, I work so, I work so much and I work so hard and I like write ideas down on my hands and bits of paper all around this hotel room and that's, it's going somewhere, you know? And it's, it's also, maybe it won't ever get there, but I like the idea that it is all still going. Yeah, but hilariously, the funny thing is that all the stuff you write, all the bits of creativity that you do, all the successes that you've had, the shows, the TV shows, the books, like it's all fucking interesting, entertaining stuff as if a conversation with you wouldn't also be interesting. Like, why would you separate your work from yourself so much? Like in terms of like you thinking, you doing other people's thinking, it's kind of ridiculous because of course it's going to be interesting. I don't, well, 
the um, people find it interesting to listen to people. Play, the iTunes plays on this sitcom or in this uh, podcast will be the telling factor as to whether. Well, to be honest, they're always the same for mine. So they really? Yeah, oh. you're just going to, you know, there's going to be a, a sort of a, a good amount of Irish people and then some, some scattered listeners around <laughs> the world that definitely like listening to the musings of comedians. And the chats go different ways, you know, like, like with you, I did want to talk about the work because, you know, you've done so much work and it's really interesting. You know, with Ursula Carlson, we talk about her being, you know, like raising her daughter in same-sex marriage yeah, you know yeah. like super interesting everybody's different things yeah. you know some people are really fucked up so you talk about their fucked up yeah yeah you know? yeah oh, no. i was curious about the work with you because i always admired your commitment to the work and i always admired or, or sometimes actually felt bad for you because you your fucking standards are so relentlessly difficult that even now at the end of this conversation you're thinking no nah, it's just not good en- I'm no, not, I, I have, uh... i'm not good enough i'm not good enough. <laughs> no i'm not like that at all i also like I'm so fucking lucky to do this, you know, which is the, another thing that I got from my dad in that, like, this is my obsession, this job, like doing stand up, doing the kids stuff. I, 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 I think about it all the time, you know, like I, I am really excited to do the probably 60th gig of this tour tonight and it'll, it'll be super fun, you know, and I also don't, but like hearing hearing that, I, I know a lot of people aren't as lucky and don't love their jobs and it works just a thing they get through and then get to their own shit in the evenings and the weekends. And so I, you know, I also don't want to rub it in people's no, faces. No, but then on it. the flip side, I guess on a Saturday and Sunday, they're just fucking chilling. Whereas on a Saturday <laughs> and Sunday, we're like fucking thinking, Jesus, I got to write this fucking thing. <laughs> I know, but also all those people are in work right now. And I am dressed in... Um, and this fucking wife is going on about his fucking kids' shows. I'm dressed in <laughs> 70s football gear. I know. Uh, ready well, to- this is the other highlight of our jobs is that we get to play football together, <laughs> you know, and all that stuff. Hey, look, it's a great life. But I, you know, I, I, I think, damn, you do, I, you, you know what? You fucking do a lot of other people's thinking more than I thought. What do you mean? Like, you're, you're always worried about how people are going to perceive shit, like, in terms of this conversation. Oh, uh, I don't, I, I mean, it's, I just don't want to do boring stuff. I yeah. don't want to do, I don't want to, you know, I like, I don't want to just do output that's, you know, we get asked to do a lot of things, oh, like things that aren't, that. I think someone's at your door. Oh, wow. Hello? No. Oh, hang on. I'm oh, so maybe, maybe this. I'll, I'll fill the, <laughs> I'll, I'll fill the, oh, it's just the water guy. Oh, sorry. I thought it was like another comedian. It would have been great if we could have had a, a cameo. Oh, it is. A, it's James Acaster. <laughs> we're in the middle of a podcast. But we're actually finishing, James, so you can come in. We're finishing. No, but James, it's no problem. Sit down. Sit down and join us at the end of our podcast. If you don't mind. I, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to your agent. But, uh, we, we, so, uh, so James Acaster is here for uh, some shorts because he's also going to play football. And we were just wrapping up, Dave. We've been talking for an hour and eight minutes. Oh, God. I hope it was, I wasn't just gazing up the leg of my trousers, James. And uh, saying non-philosophical things, which is we did we did say joking that we discuss your wang, and here it is at the end of the conversation being discussed. Well, it is James. The conversation has been of a higher quality than this. I'll have. As soon as I come in. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, the last bit of this has been me going. I also realize how lucky I am doing this He did job. wankily say that, by the way. I'm how so lucky, lucky I am while people are doing real jobs. Yeah. And then just as 
I was saying that you call in to borrow football shorts so we can go and live our life of absolute leisure. Our fucking never-ending college life. Like yeah. Our never-ending dorm existence yeah. that we fucking have that we just go, come on, we're going to be late for football, man. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, look, we'll, we'll leave it there. I don't want to be rude to James. And um, I'm the one who's interrupted. We did an we, we did an hour and I eight. No, but you're getting you're getting famous enough that it seems like a good cameo. Yeah. <laughs> so like the, there's going to be some comedy fans out there like, wow, cool is that? He was talking to David Azari that James Acaster just came in for a pair of shorts. <laughs> <laughs> this is a perfect ending. Yeah, uh, yeah. So edit this down. You edit this down to a good fifteen minutes. A good fifty man. No, there's 15, a good fifty 15, in there. Fifteen. Get it right down. Just the highlights. Just the shorts. And then, uh, yeah, just James' <laughs> yeah, cameo. Yeah, the, the, the three-minute podcast. Be a real kick Who's in the, at the door? for me. Yeah. <laughs> Who's at the door? Oh, my God, it's James Acast. We're, we're literally making a sitcom. We didn't even know that we were doing it. It's like James. And then James comes in. It's like, what's going on, James? Like, you're never going to believe or it. Or James is, <laughs> is killed at football today. And this is his last ever media appearance. So Imagine. this... This will oh, play at man. the funeral. This would be so highly rated. Really yeah, sad. Yeah. Oh, can I ask you guys a question? Do the ratings, no problem. Can I ask you a question? I don't have a fear of flying, but yeah. for some reason on some flights, I ponder the crash. Yeah. Do you ever console yourself by knowing that like it will do wonders for the sales of all your existing <laughs> stuff? I don't have enough stuff that's out there. So for me, I'm just like, oh. Fuck, there's not enough I stuff out there. I had more merch. Yeah, yeah, that's all, all, all I think <laughs> on the flights. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, from da- the Danger is Everywhere children's book series point of view, like it would be the perfect circle if da- the man who wrote Danger is Everywhere died the ultimate dangerous death. But I, I don't think that's something people would really want to inflict on their kids. It would almost make it too, you know. Yeah, it's be too like emotional. If the, if the Doors had been a children's band and then Jim Morrison choked to death in his own vomit, I don't think people would be like, oh, we'll still play that for our kids. It's almost <laughs> too bleak. Uh, and then who do you think, you know the way that people continue to write great series of books after the author dies because people oh, just love oh, it. Yeah. Who would be your uh, writer to keep the Dangerous Everywhere series going? Oh, wow. It'd be um, someone who doesn't quite get it and would do a really, really bad job of them. Brendan O'Carroll. And then I would come back and try and haunt them from beyond the grave. I don't think Brendan O'Carroll would be bothered doing the Dangers Everywhere series. I think he's got bigger, enormous sharks to fry. You could let Chris Judge carry it on solo. Yeah, Chris Judge and Chris O'Dowd then. Oh, yeah, O'Dowd Chris O'Dowd. Just, with, just yeah. People just think it was you. <laughs> great. You really missed. Them. <laughs> All right. Anyway, come on. That was great. Thank you for a, a little addition at the end, James. Thank so thanks very much to Dave. And uh, thank you for James for giving us a little bit of punctuation at the end of the chat. Um, we, I'll have Tom Ballard next week, guys. Tom Ballard, a great Aussie comic who uh, is super interesting. And he's doing a show here at the festival uh, a little bit about sort of middle class white privilege in the bubble sort of liberal bubble that some of us can live in so uh look forward to that chat and uh what else can i say well listen guys keep the old uh, ratings going on itunes uh send me a message on snapchat des buffer facebook.com forward slash des bishop twitter at des bishop instagram des bishop and uh thanks for your feedback for the dara and ursula chats uh we're also gonna have a bando man on soon i don't know when but I have chatted with Rob from Abandon Man, and we will be having a chat. And uh, I hope to have somebody, at least two or three more chats from uh, from Melbourne, and then hopefully some from Sydney and maybe even a Perth chat. So 
keep coming back guys keep spreading the word and oh yeah there's one more week to go of the melbourne international comedy festival so if you haven't seen my show come see my show 7 15 wednesday tuesday to saturday and 6 15 on sunday no show on monday and then i'm in sydney uh, in two weeks time and i'm in perth in three weeks time so anyway guys chat to you soon thanks so much bye 